chapter 2 and have that open. It'll be helpful for you this evening as we make our way through this last section of the book, Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 23. And we're considering this evening encouragements to keep the faith. Encouragements to keep the faith. After only two chapters, 38 verses, we come to the end of Haggai's prophecies. Over the course of three or four months, Haggai delivered a series of timely, challenging messages to a group of God's people who found themselves facing very difficult circumstances. Haggai delivers his closing two, two messages <coughs> on what would have been the 18th of December, 520 BC, by our dating system, exactly three months since the Jews first began to finally rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. We know from the book of Ezra that the work of rebuilding the temple in the end took over three years to complete, so still a very long way to go when Haggai's ministry came to an end. But once again, Haggai's task is to motivate the people to encourage them and to remind them of the precious promises of God that still applied to his people, promises that they could rely on. And we thought a little bit this morning about the promise in particular of God's presence and power with them as it had been with his people all through the generations. And so again, as we come to these last two messages this evening, I think we'll find timely words of challenge and encouragement for ourselves again. There are two messages that we're covering this evening. Uh, The first message is found in verses 10 to 19 of Haggai 2. And then the second message, verses 20 to 23. And so we're just going to deal with each of them in turn. Uh, There are two things to notice in particular from the first message. And so as we look at the first message, the first thing we want to note from it is the problem with empty religion. The problem with empty religion. In verses 11 to 14, Haggai turns specifically to the priests of Jerusalem to help him uh, impress upon the rest of the people a very important lesson. Look at verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil, or any kind of food, does it become holy? Does that other food become holy? Excuse me. The holy meat that Haggai is talking about here is meat that would have been left over after a burnt sacrifice was offered on the altar. So a a goat or a bull uh, would be sacrificed. The priests were allowed then to take away. It was burnt up, uh, but any meat left over after the act of worship, the priest could take it away And use it as normal food. So Haggai's question for the priests is. Does anyone or anything become holy. Simply because they've touched this meat. That was used for a holy purpose. And the answer in verse 12 is no. Just because you touch something that was used in worship. Does not mean that you are now holy. Nothing spiritual or special happens. When you touch meat that was used in sacrifice. If you think of it for us today, uh, it's, it's not a perfect example, but if you think of our communion seasons, uh, we set apart bread and wine for uh, a special use. 
But after the service, if you eat some of the leftover bread or drink some of the leftover juice or wine that we have, it doesn't make you a holy person. It doesn't make you holy even during the act of communion itself. But there's, there's no superstition attached to it. You can't get holiness from something used for a holy purpose. Holiness is not transferable. That's the point. Holiness is not transferable. But Haggai goes on, if you look at verse 13. If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, so touches any food or drink, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. And this was in line with what God's law taught. That touching all sorts of objects, be it corpses or fluids, particularly touching a dead body according to God's law, made you unclean. If you touched a dead body, you would not be able to participate in the next Passover according to Numbers chapter 9. And you had to be temporarily excluded from the community of God's people and undergo a time of isolation and ritual cleansing. And this was God teaching his people, friends, not just about uh, hygienic uh, concerns, but more importantly, teaching them uh, about the purity of worship uh, and that worship is to be a set-apart activity. You don't come casually to God. You do not come to God without thought and care, as if it's just any other thing that you do the rest of the week. You are to come purified, set-apart, ready for worship. And so not only is Haggai saying here that holiness is not transferable, he's also saying that unholiness is transferable. Unholiness is transferable. Impurity, unholiness spreads like a contagious disease. And you cannot offer pure or acceptable worship to God in an unholy manner. Now you might be wondering... This is all, this seems very different from what we've been considering so far in Haggai about rebuilding the temple. Why does Haggai bring all of this up after focusing on building the temple? <coughs> well, look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. It's a most serious accusation that God brings against his people that what has been going on in Jerusalem since they returned, since the time that Haggai preached to them and urged them to rebuild the temple, what they have been offering to God has been unacceptable, impure, unclean worship. Why? Well, it was because whatever form of worship they were bringing to God it was not worship in the way that God had commanded because the temple had not been rebuilt. The temple was rubble. The temple was like a dead body, figuratively speaking. Probably what had happened since the people came back to Jerusalem was that some kind of makeshift altar or makeshift shelter for the altar had been erected in Jerusalem. They, they had got the altar in place, but nothing else and they had thought to themselves, we're sure that'll do. As long as we have an altar, as long as we're offering the, t the kind of sacrifices 
that God commands in his word, well sure, we're ticking the box, we're doing what we're commanded and we can live life as we please. Look what God says, what's been the result of this impure unholy worship in verse 15. Before stone was placed upon the stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? In other words, before Haggai came, before they got back to rebuilding the temple in the way that they should, how had they been, how had they been getting on? Well, verse 15, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. This was the situation before the people started rebuilding the temple. God was not blessing their harvests. God wasn't providing for them as abundantly as they were expecting. 50 measures were only 20. 20 measures were only 10. And that was because, spiritually speaking, the people were impure. They were defiled. They were not prioritizing God as we thought in chapter 1. And therefore nothing they did would be pleasing to God. Certainly not the worship that they offered to God. And so friends, God is teaching his people through Haggai that empty religion. Going through the motions worship. Tick the box religion is no religion at all. It's not pleasing to God. They had kept on bringing their burnt offerings to God on the rebuilt altar in Jerusalem as a sort of a good luck charm, thinking that that holy ritual made them holy people, that it transferred holiness to them. They assumed that if they offered the right offerings in the right place, then they could live the rest of their lives however they pleased. But the point of Haggai's whole ministry is to show them your, your relationship with God, your Approach to God in worship affects every other aspect of your life. Their crops were failing, their bellies were rumbling because their hearts and therefore their worship were unholy in God's sight. Remember the words of David in Psalm 51 and his psalm of repentance. Psalm 51 verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God does not want empty religion from us. He wants wholehearted devotion from us. And for the people in Haggai's day, that meant dealing with the corpse in their midst, the rubble of the temple and rebuilding it. And as we saw in chapter 1, verse 12, after Haggai began to preach, the people did repent and they did start rebuilding the temple. They responded in the right way. And as a result, we see the other thing in this first message that Haggai gave, verses 18 and 19. We've seen the problem with empty religion, but the other main point from this first message is the promise of future blessing. The promise of of future blessing. Look at the end of verse 18. Since the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. In other words, since the day that you restarted the work. Consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on. 
I will bless you. I will bless you. And so, again, I think we need to grasp just the, the real affection and, uh, and reassurance of care and interest that God gives to his people here. They've been rebuilding the temple now for three months. They've been told that if they do so, blessing will come. And maybe three months in, they're thinking, well, is the blessing going to come? And just as we saw this morning, God knows what they're thinking. They're thinking to themselves, there's no seed yet in the barn. We haven't had a harvest season yet. But God says, from this day on, I will bless you. Remember too, when Haggai is speaking. It's the 18th of December by our calendar, the middle of winter. So when God says that the various fruit trees have yielded nothing, in a sense, it's no surprise. It's not the season for that. The people have to wait patiently for the spring, just as we're doing at the moment, counting down the days of dark old January, which is nearly over. And perhaps these people are wondering to themselves as they work in the temple, what are the crops going to be like this year? Are we finally going to see any change? Are things going to improve? And God gives them this wonderful promise. From this day on, I will bless you. They've repented of their sin. They're no longer defiled by this corpse of a temple. They're getting on with the work. And God promises them, because of your repentance, blessing is coming, even if you can't see it just yet. Friends, there is nothing so wicked and so useless as empty religion. It doesn't matter what brand of empty religion you choose, whether it's Buddhism, Islam, Roman Catholicism, or nominal Ulster Protestantism. The notion that I turn up at what I'm supposed to turn up at, I do my bit, I've, quote, paid in. The phrase that you hear in some churches in Northern Ireland, it's empty, wicked superstitious nonsense the people that Jesus got most angry with during his earthly ministry were not the prostitutes or the tax collectors or even the religious zealots the people that Jesus got most angry with were the promulgators of empty religion man-made traditions the Pharisees he rebuked them in Matthew 15 6 in this way for the sake of your tradition You have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said. This people honours me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Nothing caused Jesus anger to rise up. In a righteous way of course. But nothing caused his anger to rise up more. Than people pretending that. Man-made traditions are in fact the doctrines of God. And this is the natural tendency within every human heart. Surely if I just do this, surely if I just do that, surely if I just show up, God's happy with me and I can get on with life how I please. That attitude, Haggai says, leads to disaster. If you think that God has no interest in what you write in text messages or what you watch, on TV or how you do your work or how you do your studies, you're wrong. One Christian author has said, holiness is as much about what you do on a Monday morning on the factory floor 
as it is about what you do on a Sunday morning in a church gathering. Holiness is as much about the kind of neighbour you are as it is about the kind of church member you are. It's as much about who you are when you're holding a steering wheel as it is about who you are when you're holding a Bible. Haggai's message to us is don't compartmentalise your faith. Don't put your faith into this little box marked church and act as though it doesn't count for the rest of life. But this is essentially what has happened in Northern Ireland for a few generations now. Church, worship, being a Christian became about the hour or two that you spend wearing your best clothes, sitting on uncomfortable chairs on a Sunday morning and the rest of your life had nothing to do with it. Is God going to bless churches that give him an hour or two of half-hearted worship every week? And lives the rest of the time, or people who live the rest of the time as if God has nothing to do with my family and my work and my business, my business ethics and what I look at online and the way I speak to friends or family? Or is he going to bless the church that is actively living out the one and others of Jesus Christ? Seeking to live lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for the coming day of the Lord. Churches that are gossiping the gospel in the places where God sends us. Churches whose members are praying earnestly for the help of the Spirit to put those, quote, little sins to death. To become more holy people. Churches that take seriously the content and attitude of our worship, be it corporate or family or private. And friends, the promise of God is that if by his grace we strive after these things, then blessing will come. From this day forward, I will bless you. It's not a promise of health and wealth, but it's a promise of life with God, life to the full, life with the assurance of greater glory days to come than the glory days that we have here on earth as we thought about this morning. Peter says, 1 Peter 1 verse 15, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. All your conduct. Paul says that we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That is that every aspect of our lives is offered into God's service. Whether it be our corporate worship on the Lord's day or the things he calls us to do every other day of the week. And the promise is that true holiness, friends, leads to blessing. That fruit will come. It will come in season. Just as literal physical fruit comes in season. There's no leaves on the trees at the minute. There's no fruit in the fields or in the barns. It will come in its season. As the psalmist says in Psalm 1, that tree by the waterside, he will yield his fruit in season. That fruit may take the form of greater likeness to Christ. Greater joy in our Christian lives, even as we face trials, knowing that our shepherd is with us. It may lead to greater numbers of people gathering to worship with us. It will certainly lead to eternal life with Christ our Saviour. So that's the first message. Haggai highlights the problem of empty religion and the promise of future blessing. 
And then we come to the final message of this book. Uh, the second message that Haggai preached on the 18th of December, 520 BC. And there's just one thing I want to highlight to you from this last portion. And that is a guarantee of the coming kingdom. A guarantee of the coming kingdom. Haggai's last message, beginning in verses 20 and 21, is addressed to just one person, Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. That is, he was the local leader of the Jewish people appointed by the Persian Empire. And this was the policy of the Persians. They were a bit different from the Babylonians. The Persians allowed for one representative of of each local people group to be a sort of a token ruler over them. The reality was that Zerubbabel wouldn't have had a huge amount of power. It was just sort of a token gesture from the Persians. But in fact, God says there's more to Zerubbabel than that. Throughout the book, he is described as Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, stay with me here, was the oldest son of King Jehoiakim. Possibly he was Jehoiakim's nephew. There's a bit of debate as to how the scripture should be interpreted. But he is King Jehoiakim's heir nonetheless. Jehoiakim was one of the last kings of Judah before the exile into Babylon. You can put the family tree together later on if you like by reading 1 Kings 24 and 1 Chronicles chapter 3. But here's the point. As far as the remnant of the Jews in Jerusalem is concerned, the visible link, the the living proof that there ever was a royal family in Jerusalem is Zerubbabel. He is the closest thing to royalty that the Jews now have in Jerusalem. And yet, he's just a governor. He's not a king. And what's he the governor of? A city of rubble and ashes, a tiny, discouraged group of people who are just a dot in the Persian Empire. And yet, Haggai's whole ministry ends with a special focus on and a special, a special message for Zerubbabel. And it's a wonderful message. Haggai's final message, friends, is a guarantee that God's kingdom is coming and that it is coming through Zerubbabel. Even after the glory days of David and Solomon, the the real kings, if you like, the, the, the best, the mightiest kings, even after they are long gone, God says the kingdom in all its glory is still to come. Zerubbabel might seem very weak. He and the Jews might seem very insignificant in Jerusalem compared to the power of Persia. But God's kingdom is still to come. What guarantees does Haggai give about this coming kingdom? Well, notice first of all how Zerubbabel is described in verse 23. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. The son of Shealtiel declares the Lord. He goes on, I have chosen you. Zerubbabel, my servant, I have chosen you. This is the sort of language that God always uses in the Bible to describe someone specially set apart for a special task. It's the language that's used of King David all through the Old Testament. 
First Kings 11 verse 34 describes David as my servant whom I choose. Psalm 78 verse 70, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. So God here, friends, is comparing what he is going to do through Zerubbabel to what he did through King David. And God's saying to Zerubbabel and all the people, my promise of a saviour like David still stands. It is guaranteed in you, humble, seemingly unimpressive, seemingly powerless Zerubbabel, He is the guarantee of God's coming kingdom. What exactly was God guaranteeing here to Zerubbabel? What was he going to do through him? Well, earlier we read the family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest chosen servant of God. And you might have noticed in Matthew chapter 1 verse 13, the very first chapter of the New Testament, we find the name of who? Zerubbabel. Into the line of Zerubbabel and the line of David came Jesus of Nazareth. Humble, seemingly unimpressive, powerless in the world's eyes. But through him comes the kingdom of God in all its glory. And so friends, simply by having faith and simply by being faithful and simply by believing the promises of God, Zerubbabel, through his line, God would bring his chosen servant. Zerubbabel himself is a living guarantee of the kingdom still to come. The kingdom is also guaranteed through the pictures of God's power that we see here. Pictures of God's power guarantee the coming of the kingdom. Now, if you just bear with me as I explain this, but here's a key to help you understand some parts of Old Testament prophecy and how to make sense of them. One of the ways God guarantees the events of the future, things that he hasn't yet done, is that he describes them in ways similar to the well-known events of the past. I'll just say that again. One of the ways that God guarantees the unknown events of the future is that he describes them in ways similar to the well-known events of the past. Maybe you parents have had to do something like this with your children. Maybe you tell your children that you're taking them on holiday somewhere the children have never been before. And the children are asking you, what's it going to be like? What are we going to do there? What, what are we going to see? And it's hard to explain fully to them because they've never been before. And maybe you have to tell them, well, you remember when you went to this place or You remember when you did that activity? Well, it's going to be a bit like that, only better. And that's really what God is doing here in the promises he makes about his kingdom through Haggai. And that is simply because, friends, the people in Haggai's day could not possibly have imagined what God was going to do in the future. They couldn't have imagined that Jesus would come Born to a virgin Mary in, in, Bethlehem, in a Bethlehem stable. They couldn't have imagined that this same Jesus then would go and die, be crucified on a cross. Crucifixion had barely even been invented yet at this time. That he would rise from the dead and that the good news of his resurrection would go out to all the nations of the world as it has done and is doing. 
People in Haggai's day just could not have grasped all of that. But one of the ways in which God guarantees the unknown events of the future is to describe them in ways that are similar to the well-known events of the past. And so, for example, look at verse 21. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Something world-changing is going to happen. That's what God's saying there. Had God ever done anything like that before? Absolutely. The people in Haggai's day would have thought, for example, of the flood that God sent in Noah's time. They might have thought about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They might have thought about the fall of Jericho and and the defeat of all those other nations in the promised land. God had shaken the world before and he guarantees that he's going to do it again. Look at verse 22. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. Had God ever done something like that before? Absolutely. When the Egyptians were pursuing the Israelites and the Israelites go through the Red Sea that parts for them by God's power and then it comes back down upon the Egyptians behind them. The chariots go into the sea. Or you think of the days of Gideon going to fight the Midianites and in fact Gideon and his 300 men don't do any of the fighting. God intervenes and by his sovereignty Those men, each one fall by the sword of his brother. God had toppled human armies before to save his people. He guarantees that he will do it again. God also says in verse 22 that he's going to overthrow kingdoms. And this small group of people in Jerusalem would have known better than anyone that God is certainly capable of overthrowing kingdoms. Israel had been overthrown. Judah itself, of course, had been overthrown. Babylon then had taken its turn and been overthrown. And someday the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans would all be overthrown. See, friends, God is using language. He's using familiar events of the past to guarantee to his people that he is going to do even more wonderful events, wonderful things in the future. What he's really saying to them here, friends, is that the future is in his hands and he will do with it as he sees fit. And ultimately, of course, all of these prophecies and promises are fulfilled in the coming of God's kingdom on earth. And some of them really are only fully fulfilled in the second coming of Christ himself, which we're still waiting for. It is the the second coming of Christ. It's Christ's return That will fully and finally shake the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Every other kingdom, friends, every other nation is going to be shaken to its core at the return of Christ. What God says to Zerubbabel is absolutely guaranteed to happen. And just to emphasize and underline further that it's going to happen Look what God says in verse 23. I will make you Zerubbabel like a signet ring. This was a wax seal with the king's personal stamp that he would put on a letter 
uh, or a command to prove that it really did come from the king. God says, Zerubbabel is like my signet ring. This is my seal. This is my promise of a glorious kingdom still to come. What an incredible message, friends, that God gave to Zerubbabel through Haggai. If anything would have spurred on Zerubbabel and the people to build this temple, surely it was this. Knowing that one day the kingdom of God would come more powerfully than anything God had ever done before. Knowing that in this temple, God's own chosen one would come as we thought this morning. Knowing that once more God was going to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the nations. How does this apply to us? Well, of course, we're still waiting for the fulfillment of these promises that God made to Zerubbabel. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded frequently that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Zerubbabel couldn't see the future of this kingdom with his physical sight. But God's word through Haggai, uh, God's word through Haggai was it's guaranteed. You need spiritual vision to believe it. And maybe at times today you and I struggle to see these things. We, tr- we struggle to see the blessings. We're struggling to see the kingdom. Maybe you do strive to walk closely with the Lord, to obey him and love his word and meet with his people. And yet sometimes it's hard to keep going. Sometimes discouragements pile up. Maybe these last few months have brought changes, strains, worries. Maybe in your immediate future there are looming great challenges or causes for stress. God came to these people in Haggai's day who couldn't even see the next harvest. Never mind see the Lord Jesus Christ. And God says to them, in faith, pick up another brick. Build just a little bit more. And know that I am with you and that the harvest is coming and that the kingdom is coming. There was a little boy who, like many other children, used to ask his father during long car journeys, are we there yet? Wonder, boys and girls, do you ever ask your mum and dad that? Are we there yet? And the little boy's father would reply, no, but we're a little closer than the last time you asked. As we head out to our places of study or work, as you look after your home, as you lead family worship, as, as you live with grief or pain, remember, friends, day by day, we are a little closer to seeing all the promises of God's word come to pass. In many ways, I think the people in Haggai's day needed more faith than we do. We know now that the Messiah has come. We know how he has secured redemption for his people. We've heard him say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We've heard him say, behold, I am coming again soon. We just need faith to see these things, to believe these things. And to trust in God's guarantees of the future kingdom. Is your worship of God from the heart out of thankfulness and joy that Jesus Christ has taken away your sin and makes it possible for you to approach God in worship? Is your faith resting in his word and his promise that he is coming back? 
And as you wait for him to come, friends, will you, as it were, pick up another brick? Keep on building in your corner of the kingdom, knowing that a glorious future is absolutely guaranteed. Amen.